you will turn with me to Acts chapter 18, we'll be reading verses 23 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. And having spent some time there, he left and passed excessively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to uh, Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace, faith family. Good morning. This morning, uh, we are going to start our year off by rejoining Paul, uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off. If you remember, we picked off, uh, we, we've been traveling verse by verse over the past couple of years, uh, going through um, this uh, story of the church in the book of Acts, I believe this year. We are going to uh, get pretty close. If not, I think we might actually finish the book of Acts this year, which I'm very excited about. Um, And so we're going to pick up here. This is Paul's third missionary journey in 1823. Here in chapter 18, verse 23, he he begins what I would call his farewell tour. As a matter of fact, I almost named um, this sermon On the Road Again, but I didn't want any, any Willie Nelson references from the congregation, so I just decided to go with Unstoppable. Uh, I thought about Farewell Tour, but when I did some research on that, um, there's a recent Farewell Tour that I also don't want to be associated with. So, um, when uh, I decided to look at this, and, and you, I think you're going to see as we begin to, as we begin to, um, uh, to progress through this, why I would call it Unstoppable. So here we have, Paul is going to set off on his third and his final of his missionary journey. And by the way, when he sets off on this, as you're going to see, he didn't even know at this point, at the very beginning of it, that this was going to be his final tour. He didn't know that this was going to be the final time that he was going to actually visit these locations. He would come to understand this through Revelation that this would actually become the last opportunity that he would have to freely spread the gospel because what you're going to learn is, following this tour, he is going to be imprisoned until the point of his death. And this entire missionary journey, as we are going to experience over the next few weeks, is exciting and encouraging, but it also comes with a sense of reality. Because I I look among the face of many people, I was just speaking to someone this morning about this very thing, and most of us are also unaware of what chapter our stories are in. You woke up this morning, you woke up, a new year has dawned upon us, and we look and 
For some of you, we, we come and we look at our future and we, we think that, hey, we're on our, <clears throat> maybe we're on our first journey, we're on our second journey, we're on our third journey. We don't really know where this thing is going to end up, but we have plans to go <clears throat> uh, all over the place. We have plans to, to do so many things. And here we are, uh, and we meet Paul face to face. Now for some of you, the reality of the last chapters are very evident because the calendars are telling you that. Yet for others, like Paul, you find yourself here today without any idea of the very potential that in the near future your entire life is going to be changed. Course. The course of your life could possibly be altered. And with that change, with that, alteration with that course modification that you very well could in the next few months come up and you would have only reflections of what could have been what would have been and for many of you what should have been only reflections so as we journey over the next few weeks I want you to pay attention to that in your own life that Paul is going to set out with plans. We are going to follow him. We're going to go through this. And then revelation is going to come. And then he's going to come see some things um, that God in his grace gives him. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, that even in the midst of us beginning our journey, our chapter, our year, that although we don't know what's stretched in front of us, it comes down some, sometimes just to the point of let's doing what's in front of us taking that next step, taking that next part. But also with the understanding of this. Do you know how difficult it is to come to the end and have regrets? Let us be men who look at our lives and live our lives that are dangerous. And what I mean by dangerous, lives that are, that are meant for something, and that we don't look back and regret what we could have, would have, or should have done. But we be men of action and obedience. As I've always said, I want to have a story that my grandkids will want to listen to one day. And it's been pretty good so far. So, I want to pick up where we left off. <coughs> We're going to join Paul on this farewell tour. And, I, and what we are going to see in this farewell tour is how God's people are just unstoppable. Unstoppable. How stoppable are you? You know, every morning when I run, I, one of the things that I do is I listen, to, uh, I listen to speeches or talks and I listen to songs or something. And I was told the other day, I was listening to one individual speak and he said this in my run. He goes, you know, often all you have to do to get people to stop is just tell them no. That's it. Just tell them no, and they are dead in their tracks. They can't go any further because they just, okay, my first no is, obviously it's no, and I can't go any further. All you got to do is tell most people no in this community, in this world. But what we see here is God's people are just unstoppable because they are motivated in a way and for things that are different. So join me. We're going to pick up here in verse 23 and we're going to first thing we're going to see is Paul encourage Paul is going to encourage 
a matter of fact, we are told rather abruptly that Paul is on the road again. It says, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Again, notice it says that he spent some time there. Where is there? Now, you would have to do some contextualization here, and you'd have to look previous to what is happening. And for those of you who have been traveling with us on this journey since we began in Acts 1, you would know that there is Antioch. And this is the Antioch that is just north of Jerusalem. And it seems like this becomes, if you read through the Bible or through the book of Acts, this will become the centralized location from which the church would grew, uh, grow through the first two journeys. And what we're going to learn now is that this centralizing of Antioch is going to begin to spread and, and you're going to begin to see the church in Ephesus beginning to take on more and more of a leadership role, more and more of a, uh, maybe not a leadership role, maybe it would be better more of an influential role. But Luke seems here, as he is recording this, if you notice, he seems to be utterly unconcerned about recording what happened. Now, only the only thing that he is concerned with is that he says, quote-unquote, Paul spent some time there, which is kind of funny. He spent, he spent some time there. So what we do know here is that Paul has spent some time, whatever that may mean, whatever indication of time that may mean, he spent some time in Antioch refreshing and resting himself. But apparently this time of refreshing and resting has passed, and now we are on the road again. Now you see where I would get it. We're back on the road. We're back to our travels. Now this is what I find quite fascinating about Luke. In these two verses... Uh, verse 23, uh, 22 and 23, in these two verses, Luke is going to record for us a 1,500-mile hike. 1,500-mile hike. Now, for those of you who don't know what that looks like, that would be like me and you beginning to walk from here to Portland, Maine. Just to kind of give you a a generic idea. I, every morning, I'm celebrating a three-mile run, and Luke writes, he departed through the region of Galatia. That's all he writes, he departed through the re region of Galatia. It's humorous to me that when you read the book of Acts, and we will notice that Paul is not with, I mean, uh, Luke is not with Paul here, and you will notice, and I, fi I do find this humorous, that when Luke is not with Paul, he will cover a lot of ground and he will cover a lot of time without any really details and he does it with surprising speed. But when, when he is with Paul, he, he, goes, he goes very deep into the things that are happening. And I find that kind of funny. I find that humorous. It would be like this. Hey, Paul walked to California, but let me tell you about the time him and I were in Cantonment. Right? Wait, wait, he walked to California, and you're telling me about this little bitty cantonment. What about the walk to California? What was happening during that walk? What was going on? And Luke seems to kind of highlight that for us. Uh, in this, I do think it's important that as we see what Luke does here, that what Paul is about to do, what Luke does is he's highlighting for us the need for rest, for all of us do need rest, all of us do need to come to that aspect, but not in the replacement of the mission, but for the purpose of the mission. When Luke rests in Antioch, 
He doesn't rest for the purpose of saying, okay, now this is going to be my new identity, my identity of rest, but he does it for the purpose of preparing him for the mission ahead. Church, we are saved for a purpose that is greater than ourselves, and to understand this is a fundamental paradigm change that will happen for us. It is a fundamental paradigm change in the heart of each of us. Because what many people do is they mistake a moment of rest for a lifestyle of rest. Right? You were meant to rest for a moment. You were meant to be on rest for a season. But it's not meant to be for the rest of your life. As I often tell people, I will get plenty of sleep when I'm dead. But sleep is necessary, so I'm going to do that too. Rest, I want to say this, is for the purpose of the mission, not the replacement of it. You know, I could see them saying, Paul, why don't you just stay there? Paul, why don't you just stay in Antioch? I mean, after all, look at all the things you've done. Look at all the, the places you've been. Look at all the, the exciting opportunities that you've had. Paul looks back on his life in this moment, and I can tell you that that would not have been a hard argument for Paul. I mean, look at all the travels. Look at all the churches you've planted. But Paul is not like many in today's world. Paul is not like a man in it that are many men today. He is not resting on his, past, on his past successes and his past victories. Paul is actually looking towards his future one. Because, see, Paul is not dictating, dictating his life around what has been. He is dictating his life around what could be. Paul would tell you, why am I not just staying here in Antioch after all I've done? Because it's not the time to quit. That now, if there's ever a time, is the time to press on for the prize. Don't mistake it. I think Paul would say, oh, but I do love it here. I do enjoy it here. I do like being here. But remember, I'm called to be on mission. I'm called for the mission. Missional communities, this is something that I want to point you to as we begin to live on mission together. You love being together. I know that. You love doing family together. I get that. You love studying the Bible together. Hey, me too. I want, to, I want you to know that. But it's for the purpose of the mission. It's for the purpose of us going in obedience. It's not for the purpose of us to become big bobble-headed Christians where we have big heads and little bodies. A lot of knowledge and no obedience, hearers of the word but not doers of the word. No, we were meant for mission. You were, you were saved for a purpose. And Luke records that he passed successfully through the Galatian region in Phrygia. Now you will notice, uh, if you will do any study here, that this, this idea of him passing through the Galatian region in Phrygia plays a rather significant role in the understanding of Paul's journey. Because you could either take him to North Galatia or you could take him to South Galatia. And both of those have tremendous, uh, I, I'm not going to go in depth in that right now, but they have tremendous uh, indications on how you're going to see his mission kind of playing forth in this area. So uh, I believe and I hold to this that the most likely route that Paul takes here is he's going to go south. He's going to go along the southern part of the Galatian region the communities of Derby and Lystra and Iconium and, Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. So why do I say this? I want you to turn back with me to 16.6. 6. 
chapter 16, verse 6. And what you're going to notice here is it's going to say that they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, here we have the exact location that the Spirit forbid them to speak in before. And the probability is that Paul's ministry is in places like Derby and Lystra are now spreading to the areas around it and surrounding it because that is what the gospel is meant to do. The gospel on, on mission is meant to spread throughout the region. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, you're going to notice that it says this, that happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So we know that Paul is going to eventually end up in Ephesus. And we know this, that what happened in Ephesus? Remember, in Ephesus, our ministry was cut short the last time. I want to show you that in 1821, chapter 18, verse 21. It says, but taking leave of them and saying, this is Paul, I will return to you again if God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he was in Ephesus. He left Ephesus. He went to Caesarea. He was believed he went to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Antioch. And now he's going back. He's returning back to these places. Why? Why would you ask is he going back to these places? And Luke records for us that he's doing it to strengthening, strengthening the, all, all the disciples. The apostle went out of his way again, spending his time strengthening his disciples. Again, he's strengthening his disciples. Why do I say it again? Uh, I want to read a few verses. Uh, chapter 15, verse 41, and uh, I'll start in verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, and was a believer. And his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him and took them and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees upon which decided, I'm sorry, which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith, and were, they were increasing in number daily. So what you find here is that Paul's ministry oftentimes is in this planting in the new and strengthening the old. Do you find me? Do you feel me here? He is, he, is, he is wanting to uh, uh, reach new locations, but he is also wanting to strengthen those who are already there. And it's a challenge, I think, for all of us in this place that are disciple makers and are making disciples. It is Paul's desire to be on mission, to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, but never forgetting to stop and strengthen the new converts along the way. This is right and this is good. Strengthening those who are disciples and searching for those who aren't. Strengthening the disciples and searching for those who aren't. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, if we get either one of these disconnected from the actual ministry of disciple making, this is where we begin to get in trouble. 
if all we are about is reaching the new, reaching the new, reaching the new, then you create churches and communities that are all about bringing in the new. You begin, to, you begin to get about a church that is all about this idea of, and this is where we have in our culture become so saturated, we become a seeker-sensitive church. You know, it's all about getting the seekers in, the new people in. And then what you forget is you forget that we are supposed to strengthen the disciples. We are supposed to be strengthening those who are among us, those who are a part of our faith family. Oh, but let's go the other way. We can be all about strengthening our disciples and be caught up in our little holy huddles and we never get to the point of understanding that the reason you need to be strengthened is so that you would do the work of the ministry, which is what? The, making disciples, right? It's not me being strengthened for the purpose of my own strengthening. It's for you to be strengthened for the purpose of doing what God has called us to do. So it's two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing that we talk about with discipleship, uh, discipleship and evangelism. You know, I can't tell you how many times in the church that I have, I have been told that discipleship and evangelism are two different things. Discipleship is what you do to those who are saved, and evangelism is what you do to those who are lost. Not true. Not true. Disciple comes from the Greek word matheteo, which means to learn. And evangelism comes from the Greek word evangelio, which means to proclaim. So let me show you how this works. As an unbeliever, I want to continue to help you learn about God and learn about Jesus while I proclaim the gospel to you. And as a believer, I want to help you what? Learn about God and learn about Jesus as I what? Proclaim the gospel to you. Now the emphasis may very well be different. But they are both sides of the same coin. You don't separate those. Why did we separate those? I don't know. Probably, probably because we are a consumeristic society and we had to sell some books. And it always looks good to have an evangelism box and a discipleship box. But what if they are two sides of the same coin? And if they are two sides of the same coin, guess what that means for you, brother and sister? That you will never stop learning and you will never stop necessarily, not, uh, never, never stop having to need to have the gospel proclaimed. Because they are meant to be that. And it's the same thing for us. So faith family, listen. Yes, we are going to look to the future. We're going to connect to the past. We're going to honor the past. We are going to also strive for the future. We are going to strengthen one another as disciples. But we are also going to do it for the purpose of being able to win the loss for the, for the gospel of Jesus. Because God is worth it, yes? So strengthening those who are disciples, searching for those who are lost. So how does he do this? Well, in this, remember, this is a historical narrative. This is not a, this is not a, a letter that's being written for the purpose of, of, of ministry necessarily. It's a, it's a narrative that's showing us what happened. So we would have to turn to some of these other books, some of these other uh, letters that Paul would write back to some of these churches to help us see, okay, how did he do it? And I think that one of the areas, and uh, by the way, this would be a whole sermon series in and of itself, but I just want to turn to one. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. How did he encourage the disciples? Strengthen, excuse me, the disciples. And I think we find a good picture of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first four verses. It says, therefore, 
When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, fellow worker in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Here it is. So that one, no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer afflictions. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason... When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So here we see that Paul tells uh, the Thessalonians that he sent Timothy for the purpose of strengthening and encouragement. Why? To establish and exhort them in their faith so that they are not moved by what? By their affliction. And there it is. We are destined to demonstrate our faith by facing what? Afflictions. Now, this is not a very popular message in our day. This is not a message that we like to hear because we like the health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense. And instead of looking at this going, wait, we are destined for affliction. We are destined for suffering because it is through our affliction and through our suffering that often and more than likely uh, that God is going to be use us, and this is why we need to be established and exhorted. And for many of you, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to say, oh, I don't understand that. Many of you don't have to be strengthened that much. Many in the church don't have to be strengthened and exhorted and encouraged that much. Why? Because for many of you, you haven't experienced any sort of suffering in relationship to gospel proclamation, in relationship to obeying God. Think about it. When's the last time you sat around a prayer meeting and you actually engage people who are, who are believers and when's the last time that somebody actually said, hey, I want you to pray and encourage me because I am struggling with a spiritual thing. I'm struggling with something spiritual. Hey, I've tried to witness the, uh, to my brother, and, and my brother has denied that he even knows me anymore. Or I've tried to witness to my neighbor, and she, she won't even talk. I've tried to... How many of our, of our prayers are around the things that are necessary for us to be on mission together, and how many of our prayers are actually about our own comfort and about our own, our, 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 ourselves? It's, it's very, very observant and by the way this strengthening the word here that he uses for strengthening disciples it is the word to make firm to establish uh, another way in which it was said and i think this is a good way to see it is to stabilize you so you won't totter right and you see it so often in our day-to-day -day that there is so much unstabilization in our culture so much that is unstable that, uh, that we need to come alongside and we need to strengthen one another. I want to strengthen you. I want to help you be strengthened so that you won't totter in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain. Building one another up would be another way that Paul would say it. Why do we need to be built up? Because the people of God on the mission of God are often experiencing the, experiencing the most the brokenness of this world. Paul saw it as a privileged duty, and so he strengthens his disciples. And that's what he's doing here. He is going to encourage. The second thing we see here as we, as we look at this, this, uh, this farewell tour, if you will,
that Paul that the uh, Apollos is going to preach. This is verses 26 through 20, uh, 24 through 26a. Apollos preach Apollos preaches. While Paul is en route to Ephesus, and the reason I know that is because 19.1 says that he's going to come to Ephesus. So Paul is coming to Ephesus. If we were in a movie now, then you would have left Paul leaving from Antioch, headed through the Galatian region, strengthening the people, and we would go to the next, uh, we would go to a commercial break, or we would go to the next, uh, the next uh, uh, show, the next part of the show, the next session, and we would come to Ephesus and we would hone in. And the cameras would now pan in, focus into Ephesus, where Paul is eventually going to end, and we are introduced to this person, this new individual. And his name is Apollos. Apollos is a common name, shortened for uh, Apollonius. Apollonius, excuse me. He's a native of Alexandria. What is Alexandria? Alexandria is a large city in Egypt. What does that matter? Well, Alexandria was a large city in Egypt, and this large city in Egypt had a rather substantial Jewish population. This Jewish population was known for its academic housing and uh, academia. As a matter of fact, that when you study history, the church, uh, the, the, the uh, Jews in Alexandria actually had a, sub, one of the finest libraries of antiquity. It was one of the most important centers of Judaism outside of Jerusalem. So this, was a, this would be a place that many of the learned people would be in this little city of Alexandria. As a matter of fact, Alexandria is where the Old Testament was translated into the Greek in what we would call the Septuagint. So he's coming from Alexandria, which would tell all the people that, hey, he's coming from a city that was well-versed. And so this may indicate that this is why Apollos was so learned. Now, how the gospel actually got to Alexandria, we don't know. That has been lost in the halls of history. But we do know that the gospel reached the Egyptian capital early. We do know that. Now, there is some indication that it may have come from Pentecost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 10. I'll show you this. Acts chapter 2, verse 10. Remember, this is uh, why are not these speaking, uh, those who are speaking Galatians, how it is that we each hear them in our own language. Some are Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene. So we do know that there were individuals from Egypt at the day of Pentecost so the likelihood that, and the possibility of these Egyptians going back home and sharing that gospel in their home cities is, is, very, is highly significant. So, Apollos is an Egyptian Jew, familiar with the Old Testament, and he would be longing for the Messiah. He's an Egyptian Jew, he's familiar with the Old Testament, and he would be there longing for the Messiah. And we are told that he came to Ephesus. So we know he is not a resident of Ephesus, so he came to Ephesus. So somehow, between Paul's departure and the return of Apollos, he, uh, uh, and, and return, Apollos will arrive in Ephesus. We also learn here that he is an eloquent man. He is uh, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. 
By the way, this word for eloquent is the only place that's used in the Scriptures. But when you look at other writings of antiquity and you see how they are used, it is used in this day and this time as one who is knowledgeable in a specific subject. So to be an eloquent man is to be one who would be knowledgeable in a specific subject. We would say that a, a doctor, a brain surgeon, for instance, would be an eloquent man who is, who is eloquent in what? He is eloquent in brains or a brain, a neurology or brains or whatever kind of give you an idea behind what this word actually means. So we would need to ask the question, what was the subject that he was knowledgeable in? And I think that's what Luke is going to record for us. He says that he was an eloquent man and he was mighty in what? The scriptures. So his subject of eloquence was that he was mighty or he was competent in the scriptures. The word mighty is one of being dynamic. And I think this is extremely helpful for us especially in our day. Because often we hear, and I am going to say this, listen to me carefully, rightfully so, we hear often that God can use the foolish of this world. And He can, praise be to God. Evidence. Right? We praise God for that. But just because God can use the foolish doesn't necessarily mean that we must strive to be foolish. You hear me? Or that doesn't necessarily mean we ought to glory in our foolishness. That's what we like to do today. Or in our naivete. Or in our, another good, good Bible word that we don't, that most moms, you know, they, don't use that word. Stupidity. Right? That doesn't mean that we, we ought to relish in it. Often, I think that what you find is that the reason we, we like to exhort the fact that God can use foolish people is because it becomes a cop-out for our laziness and our apathy for our own diligence and discipline in reading and studying and learning. Now listen to me. I want to make it clear. Praise God that He uses the foolish. Praise God that He uses the foolish. But we can also see that he uses the mighty and the competent as well. Paul was not a foolish man. Paul was not stupid. Paul was very intelligent. Apollos, very intelligent. Now, there are two ways to interpret what we read and what happens next. And you are smart people. You are well-versed. I want to encourage you are not stupid or foolish, I hope. Um, you are well-versed in the Scriptures, and you can make your decision. But there are two ways to interpret what, what, what happens next. Either Apollos was an unbeliever and he needed to become a believer, okay? which is quite possible, and many hold to that, that he was an unbeliever and he needed to become a believer, or Apollos was a believer and merely was incorrect in one of his doctrinal positions. And you have to come to the decision on whether you believe Apollos at this moment is an unbeliever or whether he's a believer and if he's a believer, then what does that mean? He must have been incorrect in one of his doctrinal positions. Now, I know none of you hold to, you know, incorrect doctrinal positions, or one of me, one of one. Just kidding. You're a tough group this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep the plain things the main things, and I'm going to allow this passage 
to speak to us, and, I, and obviously I'm going to share what I believe and what I see in the Scripture, but I don't think, when you look at the passage and you record what Luke has said, I don't think it's confusing at all. I'm going to do it in a way that's not confusing, uh, as so many make it to be. It becomes so awkward. And I think Luke gives us exactly what we need. And, and I want you to see this. First, it says that he was mighty in the Scriptures. And I think that's an important phrase. He is mighty in the Scriptures. Second, it says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The word instructed here is where we would get our word for catechism. It means to be orally instructed. The word actually is, if you were literally to translate it, it means to re-echo. And a lot of times when, when we go over catechism, now I'm at a point in our life, in our family's life, in which my children are old enough, in which they're sometimes catechizing me because often I'm doing it when I'm driving or we're doing it when we're headed to school and Chase will read me the catechism and I'm re-echoing back what he has said because for, uh, you know, the past, well... For the past almost 20 years now, we, I have been working on re-echoing with my kids what they are going to say back to me. And now we are at the point where, where this is happening. But the important part for, for us here is this idea of he is, he is um, uh, being instructed is this idea of catechism or re-echoing. So what we know is Apollos has been systematically instructed in what? In the way of the Lord. In the way of the Lord. And who is the Lord? None other than Jesus. So we know he is acquainted with the gospel. In some way, shape, or form, he is acquainted with the gospel. Thirdly, I want you to see this. It says that he was fervent in spirit. He is fervent in spirit. Now, if you hold that this is his spirit, his soul, then what, what it is saying, if he is fervent in his own spirit, he was merely excited about what he knew, from the teachings of none other than John the Baptist. So he is excited about these things. But when you study this in the Greek, there is a definite article in front of spirit, which indicates for us that it would say that he was fervent in the spirit, which if it is in the spirit, then it is very uh, uh, possible that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. And if it's referring to the Holy Spirit, then it tells us that he is, uh, he is fervent in that which is the Spirit of God indwelling him. And fourthly, we are told he taught accurately the things, what? Concerning Jesus. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So all of these, if you put them together, seem to indicate to me that I do believe that Apollos is a Christian. I would say that Apollos here is a Christian, but it's one that seems that to have had only known the baptism of John. He had seemed to only have been taught in some way the baptism of John. Get this, because I don't want it to, it to become too difficult for us. Apollos knew the way of the Lord was fervent in the Holy Spirit, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, However, there seems to be an indication of his deficiency in his understanding of baptism. Right? Because when you look at theology, baptism would be a secondary doctrine. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. 
It's a secondary doctrine. So what we would say is that I believe, and I think I hold to this, that Apollos was a believer that may have been deficient in his understanding of baptism. As a matter of fact, I have a very strong conviction that there are still those in our, in our world today, brothers and sisters of Christ, believers in Christ, but they are deficient in their understanding of baptism. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen. Next week we are going to encounter those who are not only deficient in baptism, but those who are deficient in the gospel, and they will be marked as unbelievers. And I believe the, that God in His grace has put these side by side. You have Apollos, who knew Christ, who was not deficient in his, in his knowledge of the gospel, was, but was deficient in his doctrine. And then we are going to meet some people next week who were not only deficient in their doctrine of some uh, uh, secondary doctrine, but they are also deficient in their knowledge of the gospel. So we are going to have to deal with all sorts. But that is not the case here. I think having both of these stories next to one another is very important to us. But what I want you to notice here is that although Apollos' understanding of baptism was inadequate, there is no indication of him needing to be rebaptized. Right? There's no indication of the fact that Paul needs to be rebaptized. In other words, his orthodoxy in the essential doctrines are solid. He grasped the understanding of the gospel because he knew the Redeemer was given to the world and that by grace through faith we are reconciled to God through Jesus. Yet, for some reason, he differed in his understanding of baptism because he only knew of the baptism of John through whatever means that may be. We may have him speaking out boldly in the synagogue, right? That's what it says. He was speaking out boldly in the synagogue. And that's what he was, he was doing in these things. By the way, this idea for boldness refers to a fearlessness, a bluntness, to speak with a freedom, even in the face of opposition. A word that we would use is confidence. Confidence. You know, I just had an uh, interesting situation happen to me this very week. I was sitting down with a young individual, and we were. this was on Thursday in one of my meetings, I was sitting down with them, and uh, they began to talk to me about their lack of self-confidence. It's an interesting word. Any of y'all have ever heard of a lack of self-confidence? Now I want to ask you a very simple question. What is confidence? This is where it gets interesting, because we like to use words that we don't have any idea where they come from, but we talk about this, and you just go, I'm just not confident in myself. What is that? What do you mean you're not confident in myself? And then when you get to, get to the bottom of the foundation of what this means, you find a very vacuous, a very ambiguous meaning that they don't even know what they mean. And what begins to happen is we begin to talk about things we don't know what we mean on words that we are definite we know what we mean. Y'all hear me? Like a lack of self-confidence. Confidence, by the way, comes from the combination of two Latin words, confidere. Con, C-O-N, means with. Fidere means trust. So to have confidence, it means that you have, it's with trust. So when you lack self-confidence, this is what I told the young lady, I said, when you lack self-confidence, what are you saying? You don't what about yourself? You don't trust yourself. And then I asked her this question, kind of interesting, what are you not trusting yourself in? And it became very, very perplexing. 
So ladies and gentlemen, oftentimes when I come to people who lack of boldness, who lack of confidence, who lack of these things, especially in themselves, what are you not trusting yourself in? And you either get to the point of saying, I don't have confidence in this, uh, I don't trust myself in this, and then what often happens is we, we form that idea as a cop-out, and then we just skip and staying going, instead of getting to the getting to the, the, to the nuts and bolts of it and going, wait, what am I not confident in myself in? And going, wait, I need to grow in that area of confidence. I need to grow in that area of trusting myself so that I don't lack boldness, so I don't uh, live my life in a lack of self-confidence. I need to trust in myself in these things because I know these things to be true and to be right. And here is where the rubber meets the proverbial road. Because the most of us lack in our self-confidence because we're not trusting in something in ourselves. And if there is a verse that I take with me often in the times in which I have to deal with difficult situations, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Now, who am I trusting in? And do I have any reason to lack confidence? And the reason that we often lack confidence is because we often confuse confidence for arrogance. Right? Pride is having confidence in things you have no business having confidence in, right? If you are arrogant in something, if you are prideful in something, it's a trust in something that you have no business having trust in. But true confidence is not arrogance. True confidence is what we would call boldness. It's what I said to y'all last week, creating men that are bold men that don't fear, men that are dangerous to this world because we are for something that this world is not for. It's a boldness. It's a fearlessness. It's a bluntness. It's a confidence. So, we have Paul encouraging, we have Apollos preaching, and then we have Priscilla and Aquila explaining. Priscilla and Aquila explaining. I want you to remember we are being reintroduced to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Do y'all remember where we last left them? Chapter 18. If you were with me, you would know this. Chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. It says that Paul, remained, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea uh, for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In, uh, uh, in, uh, that word. He had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Centria. Centria? Centria. Whatever. Uh, verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and what does it say next? And he left them there. Who did he leave there? Priscilla and Aquila. So, Priscilla and Aquila have been left in Ephesus, and apparently the ministry that Paul had began is still alive and well, even in the synagogue. So they hear Apollos, and he is boldly proclaiming the truth of God's goodness and grace, which we love. And by the way, this is what you're going to find with many, many young people. 
Many young people have this desire to proclaim with a boldness, ah, with a strength. And notice what it says they do. It says, um, but, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Notice, they take him aside, which likely means, and all the commentators seem to indicate, that it means that they probably took him into their living space. That is what it means to take him aside. Or, what we would say is they would bring him into their home. And what would they bring him into their home and do? It says they would explain the way of God to him more accurately. I want you to notice something here that is often overlooked. Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside. Did you see that? Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside. That is marriage on mission. That is what it looks like to be a couple on mission together. That you are together, building, strengthening, you are moving together as a couple, one unit, unified in the midst of mission. The reason that God has brought you together is because you together would be, would be better for you to go out and to proclaim the gospel together, to be on mission together. Marriage, marriage does not eliminate the mission. Marriage supports the mission. And here you see them doing it together. And it says they, are they Priscilla and Aquila, are going to the synagogue because the synagogue is still the center of Jewish culture and Jewish community. They take Apollos away from the synagogue and within, within earshot of others, they began to explain to him more accurately. It is the same word in, in verse 25 that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So we have Apollos accurate in his teaching on Jesus and what he knew, but he was in need of accuracy concerning the way of God in regards to baptism. And I believe if I could work this out and I, and I have time to do it later if we wanted to get into this in your own missional communities, I believe what they are doing is they are instructing him in the outworking of this new covenant into the everyday stuff of life that God intended for it to impact. He is instructing them on what it's going to look like for them to live the way, that for, for Apollos to, to live the way God has called him to live. The way of God is, is only used in three other places. This idea of him instructing and explaining to him the way of God more accurately, it is only used in three other places in the Bible. In the New Testament, all three of them will tell the story of paying taxes to Caesar. Which is interesting. So turn with me to Luke chapter 20. I want to show this to you. Luke, I, by the way, chapter 20, the same writer of the book of Acts. Luke chapter 20, verses 21 through 22. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they are telling, they're asking Jesus, is it lawful for us to do that? Because we know that you speak of the way of God. So the way of God seems to be 
to me, if we were to read this, it's the outworking of God's purposes through the everyday stuff of life, like what? Paying taxes. Normal, everyday stuff of life. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, the way of God that Priscilla and Aquila are teaching is that they have both come to know and they have both learned from their time with who? The Apostle Paul. Right? They were with him, they saw him live, and they were doing it together as a couple, pulled him aside, teaching them the way of truth. This younger man, they're teaching, these older people are taking the responsibility of bringing him in because often with, with, with youth, you have, this, you have this exuberant passion, this boldness, and often with, with, uh, with age, you have this wisdom and this knowledge, especially the experience, right? Wisdom, wisdom, real good, true wisdom, and you're going to learn this. We're going to study the book of Proverbs later. Wisdom is learning through the experience of others. Right? That's real good wisdom when you can learn what from other people's mistakes. And here we have this wisdom, and you've got these older people with this wisdom plowing into this young man here, Apollos, with this boldness, this boldness that he has to go and to be right and to be good, and you have the beauty of the church working together, all for the purpose of the gospel. But there's another important yet subtle truth here. And this is for all of my smart people. And for those of you who think you're smart. Listen. And I think this is important. You know, I was, I was having this conversation about the confidence conversation on Thursday. Um, Marcus is up here. He plays, the, he plays the guitar. He plays the that box. He, plays, he can play anything. Marcus can play anything. I go up to Marcus and I say, hey, Marcus, you are, uh, God has really blessed you as a musician. Have you, ever, have you ever heard somebody sing beautifully and you tell them, man, you are a beautiful singer, and they go, no, I'm really, shut up, you're good. No, I'm not. Yes, you can play, the, you're better than I am. I mean, have some confidence and trust in yourself that, hey, praise be to God. That ought to be our explanation. Our explanation in the confidence ought to be praise God. Thank you, thank you. Praise God for the fact that he has given me the gift of, of music. Do you want me to play the guitar? You want me to cajon it out? We're all going to be out of rhythm in a minute, right? So why I say that, I think that we can come in, and for some of you, you are smart. God has gifted you with intelligence. You are smart. And many of you are smart. Many of you are book smart. You know the difference. You are book smart. Man, you can pick up a book and you just know things. You're just like, man, you just know things. Other of you might be like myself. You're not so much book smart. You're just street smart. You're common sense smart. You just get, hey, you probably shouldn't walk into that crowd. You probably just say it. Right? Some of you have a little bit of both, a little bit of book smart, a little bit of street smart. But I want you to notice, this is a very subtle truth, but I want you to see the truth here. Apollos, no doubt, Apollos, the Bible says, was well learned. He was elegant. He was competent. He was fervent. And he was bold. But did you get the picture? Apollos is learned, he's eloquent, he's competent, he's fervent, he's bold. And here, he is being instructed by a couple of tent makers. 
How do I know they were tent makers? Because I read back. Remember when we read back that Priscilla and Aquila were making tents with uh, with the apostle? Remember? Um, it's back there. I think it's in... You just have to trust me. It's back there. So here we have these tent makers instructing Apollos. The humility of this man, I think, is exemplary for us. The willingness to learn from others. So what do you have? You have the grace of a Priscilla and an Aquila. They choose not to abuse him. They choose not to embarrass him. No, what do they choose to do? They choose to invite them into their home, into the privacy of their home, and they instruct him to give him a further picture of all the understanding that he currently lacks. And then you have the humility of Apollos. By the way, a type of humility that makes Apollos so, the type of Apollos is like this so powerful. Humble enough to always learn and bold enough to always proclaim. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't ever want us to forget that often the door to community is the front door of your address of your house. And it is the outworking of your life. How do I know this? Because here's what's interesting about Priscilla and Aquila. They will eventually return to Rome. They are eventually going to return to Rome and be with Paul. But I want you to hear what Paul says about them. Turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Here Paul is writing a letter to the Romans. Beginning in verse 1, listen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Quinteria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For her, she herself has, been, has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Watch, verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, that's Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches in the Gentiles. Listen, also greet the church that is in their They never stop opening their homes. Whether it be in Ephesus, whether it be in Rome, they always looked and saw their homes as one of the most influential tools to gospel opportunity. And I want to tell you, it still is. It still is. Do you know how many times, and I may hurt somebody's heart here, and I don't mean to, but do you know how many times I have had people tell me, but my home is so small? That's the reason I don't do it. My home is too small. Do you know how small their homes were? Do you know how big their homes were? You don't. It ain't the size of your house. It's the openness of your door. It's not, the, it's not the width of your table. It's the warmth of your heart. It's not your house. 
It's your hospitality. It's an amazing little story, isn't it? All right, so lastly, and we're going to move from here, we have Apollos moving, Apollos moving 27 and 28. The Bible says he wants to go to Achaia. Achaia, by the way, for those of you who are taking notes, that is the area that we would know as Corinth. By the way, it's an area that we know that Paul had already worked. And if you want to know the impact that Apollos had on Corinth, I want you to read the letters to Corinth that Paul writes. I'm going to give you some references here. You can write in your notes. 1 Corinthians, all these come from 1 Corinthians, so you can just keep one core, right? 1 Corinthians. Here are your verses. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 3, 4 through 6. And chapter 4, verse 6. That's the three big ones. Chapter 1, 13. Chapter 3, 4 through 6. And chapter 4, verse 6. You go and see the impact the Apollos had. So why did he want to go there? I don't know. And you don't know either. And neither does any of the commentary, commentators. All we know is that he wants to go there. One translation indicates that he may have been invited to minister to them by some who are at, at Ephesus. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila told him about Paul's journey, which piqued his interest. All we know is he wanted to go, and the brothers, by the way, encouraged him, and they write to the disciples to welcome him. By the way, this is the first clear evidence that a church had been started in Ephesus. Because here we see that he wants to go, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So now we have not only Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, but we have the brethren. We have more people gathered there. So from 19 verse 1, chapter 19 verse 1, we find out that Apollos, we're going to study this next week, that Apollos will go to Corinth and he will help those who through grace believed. Ain't that so good? That is so good. That's what it says. It happened that while Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, uh, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And it says, and he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Verse 27. That is so good. A community who knew the gospel they responded to was solely on the basis of God's grace. How did Paul, Apollo so help them? Well, it says that he powerly refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures or the Old Testament that the Christ was Jesus. You see, this is the subject of the Jews. Is Jesus Christ? Not only is he Christ, but is he the Christ through whom salvation alone is available? And later we're going to discover that Apollos is so good in Corinth that the Corinthians held Apollos in the same esteem as Paul. As a matter of fact, the quote-unquote who is better, is, going, is, is Paul better, is Apollos better, is going to cause a division at Corinth that Paul's going to have to address in his letter. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me say this because it's very important. We've already known the humility of Apollos. There is no indication that Apollos caused any of this division, nor is there any indication that Paul, uh, that Paul blamed Apollos for it because that is not written in Corinth. But what we discover here with Apollos is we discover a scholar, an orator, a debater is being used for the glory of God. A finely trained mind, ladies and gentlemen, is a powerful tool for the kingdom of God. 
And Apollos demonstrates that those who do possess such a gift as this ought to remain humble, serve the church, and be on mission. Because, ladies and gentlemen, those who believe in Christ by faith, you do not have to check your reasoning at the door. Science and faith are not at odds with one another. Fact and faith are not in opposition to one another. I would never believe that which my mind cannot conceive. I would never follow that which I don't believe to be true. I'm stubborn like that. As a matter of fact, I would tell us to use the gifts that God has given us to know for the glory of God and the mission of God which He has redeemed us for. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 37, 31 says that the law of His God is in His hearts. His steps do not slip. The way His steps do not slip is because He has the law of God in His heart. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up Your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It was the storing of the word in his heart that leads the psalmist not to sin against him. Psalm 119.1 Blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. How can we walk in a way we don't know? Psalm 1 Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not either or, it's both and. It's fervency and passion combined with truth and word. So what is happening here in Ephesus? Something is. No wonder, right? I mean, with men like Paul and Apollos with couples like Priscilla and Aquila and with a church in which the Spirit of God is moving and the Word of God is being taught and the, and the disciples are being strengthened and they are sending people out and bringing people in. No wonder, right? What's going on in Ephesus? going on in Pensacola any Priscilla and Aquilas in the room any Apollos's? any Paul's any Donnie's Terry's Chris's Nick's Marcus's Charles James Mike Jordan's anybody what would it take for us to look like that where we are such so focused on the mission that God has for us that we would be the people that God has called us to be for one another that we're not fighting with one another we're not fighting at one another but we're for one another will you stand to your feet you see the, the, the truth of the matter is that what was at the root of all that they're doing is none other than the gospel of Christ, that he was able to proclaim 
the fact that Christ was Lord. He was the Messiah. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is no other name under heaven by, when, by, by which men must be saved. And the fact, is, the fact of the matter is that the Spirit moves inside of those who are Spirit-filled. Let me say it again. The Spirit moves inside of those who are Spirit-filled. And could the very reason, could our very reason for some is the reason that the Spirit is not moving is because there is no spiritual presence. Or could it be that the reason the Spirit is not moving is because we are truly desiring the things of this world more than we're desiring the things of eternity? So I call you into this moment, into this time, into this area, into this idea. And I draw you to the truth of God's Word. And I ask that if there is one of you in here who does not know Christ as his Lord and Savior, would you come to know him before it's eternally too late? Because let me assure you of this. I don't know where you are on your journey. I don't know where your story is, is at. But these things I do know. I do know that it can end when you least expect it. And I do know that every single person within the sound of my voice will stand before Christ one day and be held accountable. So if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would call for you to call out, call out to Him by faith, by grace through faith. Trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. And the demonstration of that is to follow through in a believer's baptism. Why? Because it is the sign in which you will now die to yourself and be raised to your new life. You will die to your old identity and be raised to your new one in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You will get a new family, name of the Father. You will become a servant of the new king, which is uh, Jesus. And you will now be equipped to go and be on mission, which is the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. New identity, new person, so that you now can be a disciple, a learner that makes disciples. Would you like to join us in that? And for those of us who are his people. And this next part, by the way, is only for those who are his people, who are his children, who have believed in him by faith, been baptized by, by faith that we are now going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Because I know that oftentimes I am not the man that God has called me to be. And when I hear a message like this, I am often challenged. So what we're going to do is we're going to come back and remember, remember that the reason we wake up on Monday to be on the mission that God has saved us and redeemed us for is because of all that He's done for us and all that we will do for Him. So we draw the elements to ourselves and we participate in these things so that we would be reminded of His work so faith family, I ask now, and for those of you who are believers in Christ, I ask now that we would bow our heads and close our eyes because we do not want to come to this table in an unworthy manner, that we would confess our sins before him that is revealed to us through the preaching and teaching of God's word, and we would once again repent and ask for him to do his work. I want to give a few moments of quiet for you to do that. Then I will lead us in prayer and we will participate in the Lord's Supper. Let us pray.